0: Cole will return to the office tomorrow after a couple weeks out west in Colorado. And so I have the honor of introducing Jamie Trussell to you. Uh, Jamie is an Auburn grad, for better or worse, if you agree or disagree with that. And uh, he came to Memphis to direct the Emerging Leaders Program of the Downline uh, Ministries Institute for several years. And then he led a church in Austin, Texas, and then was in Tupelo, Mississippi, and now he is back in Memphis at Harvest Church. And so we are grateful to have you with us and look forward to what you have to share with us this morning. Well, good morning, First of Anne. How are we? It's a long walk. I was debating with Cricket if I could just stop there, but I came all the way up this morning, and I'm privileged to be here. First of is a special place uh, for me. This is where I... I was uh, married to my wonderful bride Shanna. She walked down that aisle to me here as Cole officiated our wedding ceremony and this church has been a very meaningful place to us in our life and marriage and walk with Christ. And so thankful to have this opportunity to share in God's Word with you this morning. Now that was like waving a magic wand that got those kids barreling out of here (laughs) this morning. I was considering figuring out how y'all do that to take it to my home. Uh, We've got three wonderful kids, another one on the way, but my five-year-old would have given us about a five-minute dissertation on how he could leave, but it would be better served not to. And so that was incredible how they went charging to their classrooms. We are in the Gospel of John this morning, John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21 is where we'll spend the bulk of our time. But just to frame this a little bit for us. John's Gospels uh, really unique uh, in a lot of ways. It contains things not found in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but it, its primary uniqueness really comes to us towards the end of the book as it's one of the only books in the New Testament that, that lays out its thesis statement. And by that I simply mean uh, it, it lays out in, in great clarity the singular purpose for which it is written. Okay, so in John chapter 20, you don't have to turn there, but in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, this is what John writes. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these. So here's why he wrote these. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That singular statement, the idea that John composed everything, arranged everything, so that one, we would know Jesus is the Son of God, and then secondly, that by believing in him would have life in his name. That is the entire grid through which the Gospel of John is meant to be read through. So at every turn of the page, you're asking, okay, how does this present Jesus as the Christ? How does this inform me about having life in his name, in today's passage, the, the, the event that we're in, uh, a story that may be familiar to some of us, that Jesus walking on water is one of the clearest pictures of that. That you have uh, God in the form of man walking on water, so he's defying the laws of nature of which none of us could ever achieve. Could, none of us could do that. That is a divine act. It's the Son of God. And he is going to bring life into a scenario that seemingly is ripe For death, as they are stuck three to four miles offshore, presumably capsizing waves, roaring winds, afraid for their lives. And so we see Christ, the Son of God, we see him bringing life into a situation that is ripe for death. Now our passage this morning, John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21, the very words of God reads like this. I'm in the Christian Standard Bible this morning. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose, and the sea began to churn. And after they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, and he was coming near the boat. They were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were willing to take him on board, and at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. That's John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21. Those are the very words of God. Would you permit me to pray? Father, we're grateful that that we can come to the Bible confident of a couple things. One, that it's from you. It being from you, it makes it authoritative and it makes it truthful. Therefore, what follows, if at any point we find ourselves disagreeing with the Bible, it necessarily makes us wrong. And so we ask in your kindness, would you, uh, in in the power of your spirit, uh, maybe correct our thinking, uh, curb our feeling, uh, rebuke our sin, uh, grant us hope and encouragement through our time in your word this morning. We ask this in Christ's wonderful name I pray, amen. Uh, Now you're going to hear me reference some details of this story this morning, and if you're looking closely at our passage, you'll find that some of those details aren't there. And so if you wanted to make a quick note, uh, Mark chapter 6, Matthew chapter 14 record this very same event. And if you put all three together is where you get a more holistic picture of what's happening as these disciples are trapped in this boat in the sea. And I'll uh, tell you uh, uh, as a confessional this morning, this is one of the few passages that I'll study in the Bible that, that uh, uh, brings up very real anxiety for me. Okay, uh, uh, palpable I can feel it. It's unsettling. Uh, I have a great fear. I have two great fears. Uh, One is I do not want to be outside when it's lightning. I was on the golf course last week and the lightning horn went off and the other three guys wanted to press through. And I was sitting there the whole time going, I've got a beautiful wife. I've got three children. And I am risking it all on a golf course. Terrified. But the second one is I am... Uh, deathly afraid of fast rushing water or turbulent seas. I am not the guy to invite on a whitewater rafting trip. I will puncture your raft before it ever makes it offshore. (laughs) It is not me. And so I try to put myself, and you have to do this at times when you're reading the Bible, it's called reading with imagination. That doesn't mean inventing things, it means placing yourself in the story, and if I place myself in this boat with the disciples, it is, its it f- makes me physically anxious. And, and for a lot of us, the idea of the water is an unsettling place. If we're walking to our cars after church and we fall on the sidewalk, we scrape our knee. If we fall out of a boat, we drown. It's two different environments. And I think you could argue uh, convincingly so, that this is a vulnerable, unsettling place for the disciples. Though many of them were fishermen, you don't sign up for a, a storm at sea. They are stuck. The wind is howling. The waves are beating against them. And they are lost, making no progress. They are very much in a storm. Now, for a lot of us, if we were to carry the idea of a storm as an analogy, uh, that resonates with some of us this morning. You walked in here in the midst of a storm, and if you were permitted to, to stand and be honest and were brave enough to, to, to do so, that you would admit that to even sing some of the songs we were led in this morning, it was difficult enough for you to simply mumble some of the words that are printed before you are up on the screens, that you are very much in the midst of a storm. Storms come in every arena of life, don't they? You could be in a vocational storm where either you're jobless and searching, you're in a job that feels like a dead end, Uh, maybe you're addicted to your job, and it is stealing your soul as you try to find your identity in something other than Christ. It can be a vocational storm, it can be a relational storm. Or that can play out uh, with our spouses. Uh, you may be in a marital storm, play out in parenting. It may be with extended family, it may be friends, it may be with neighbors. You can be in relational storms, you can be in financial storms. Great example of our uh, earlier time this morning with Andrew talking about the flooding that happened in Germantown. You can be in a spiritual storm, rebelling against God, angry at God. Lacking trust or faith in God. Storms come in multiple arenas on multiple levels. And even those storms, all the ones that I name, can can come uh, with different points of origin. Okay, so one point of origin for a lot of our storms is squarely on us. It's because of our decisions, because of our sin because of our self-centeredness. And we know that's the point of origin. Now, it doesn't uh, diminish the pain or difficulty that those storms can bring, but oftentimes those are a little more palatable because we know we caused them. Had I not quite been so selfish, had I not been quite so angry, quite so greedy, uh, quite so lustful, a lot of those storms could have been avoided. They are Uh, Their origin is my own poor decision-making and self-centered sin. But there are other storms, too, with a different point of origin. Uh, Those are the ones we don't cause. None of us caused the flooding that Andrew spoke about earlier. Uh, Oftentimes, when it's health-related, it's not our fault. Things are done to us by others. It's not our fault. They chose to make those poor decisions, and yet we find ourselves in a storm all the same. It's difficult. It's hard. It's painful. And I find that second category where the point of origin actually is not me to be more difficult. Why did this happen? What's the purpose of this? When will this storm stop Raging, You feel a little bit more out of control when that point of origin is considered. And that's the storm the disciples are in. In fact, in fairness to them, we could almost place them in a third category. For If you were to read the Mark account, the only reason they are in this boat in the middle of the sea, stuck in the storm, storm is because the scriptures say in Mark, Jesus made them get into the boat. Now think about that. They are caught in the middle of a storm, afraid, making no felt progress, no advancement, purposeless in their mind. And the only reason they are there is because they did exactly what God asked them to do. First of all, can that not be true of us? Following Jesus does not guarantee you a storm-free life, does it? And beyond that, it's in doing exactly what he's called us to do at times that can put us squarely in the middle of a storm. And that's where they find themselves, in a boat, in the middle of the sea, wind howling, waves crashing, making no progress, stuck. Why? Jesus told them to do it. And so, with that as our backdrop, let's look. John chapter 6, verse 16. When evening came, now, uh, it, it, this does come directly after, hours after, Jesus just fed 5,000. So, he feeds the 5,000. You know, scholars, many of you have heard this. If they're just counting the men, you could presume the same amount of women, more children. So, uh, it's massive crowd 10, 15,000 people. They've just been fed. This miraculous feeding. Uh, this would be what we call in our modern, uh, kind of real Christian vernacular. This is a bit of a spiritual mountaintop experience for these disciples. That they are at the height of heights in their experience with Jesus. And Jesus goes to the mountain to pray and sends them out into the sea. So evening has come. Jesus sent them away. They go down to the sea. They get in the boat. And they start across to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in. But Jesus had not yet come to them. Now, a quick aside on verse 17, this idea of darkness and light. It's a very, it's an intentional uh, imagery by John. It carries out his whole gospel. In fact, John chapter 1, and it's just known as this great prologue to the gospel of John, talks about, and Jesus is the light of the world, and his light is the life of mankind. And here he says, darkness set in because Jesus had not yet come Uh, uh, Just to chase that for a moment, that is the spiritual estate of all of us until God opens our eyes and uh, grants and empowers us to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. Darkness sets in until Jesus arrives. That is a spiritual condition of culture. And that was, if you've responded to the Lord in repentance and faith, that was the spiritual condition of all of us. None of us were born on third base just needing to get home. We were not even born into the batter's box and the baseball diamond of spirituality. It is all the work of Christ. And unless Jesus comes, we remain in darkness. So darkness has set in. Jesus has not yet come to them. Verse 18, a high wind arose, the sea began to churn. And actually they had rowed about three or four miles. Now, I don't know about you, I'm not in great shape. I know this kind of fools you, but I'm not in great shape. Three or four miles is a long way to row. And they're in the middle of the night, most likely between 3 and 6 a.m. So they have been at this for hours and hours and hours. So they're afraid. They're exhausted and they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat and they were afraid. And this is the moment of the story that has always rendered itself uh, the most confusing for me. Okay, now, what I'm about to embark on, I would uh, admit to you, it's a little bit of biblical conjecture. I'm asking a question the text isn't answering. And so in the text not answering it, I'm interjecting uh, the way that I best uh, or most plausibly understand what's happening. Now, why is this confusing? Well, think about it. The disciples have been with Jesus for quite some time. So, so, so they knew what he looked like. Not only that, uh, back in ancient times, the sea would not have been well lit. Now, maybe if it's in the twilight hours, there's a little bit of light peeking through. But if the wind is blowing like it says that it is... And if the waves are churning like the wind would have caused it to be, that's going to be pretty noisy. So if they're able to talk to Jesus in this passage, the only way they're able to see him or converse with him, it stands to reason that he was incredibly close to the boat. This would have been impossible if he was far away. So if I've got the picture of him being close enough so they can hear him, close enough so they can see him, why on earth? Do they not recognize them? And if you think about someone you are intimately familiar with, uh, right? So I can just think about uh, my family, uh, right? So, so my beautiful wife, my kids. I could be a football field away from them, and they could be in a crowd of people, and I could easily pick them out walking. Right, the way they carry themselves, the way they look, their stride. You recognize with great accuracy, even far away, someone that you're intimately familiar with, which they would have been with Jesus. So, why, if he's close to the boat, if they're intricately familiar with his presence, do they not recognize who it is? And so, in all of my conjecture of trying to solve that riddle, which has always puzzled me, this is where I land. I think they don't recognize that that is Jesus because they have already concluded it could not possibly be him. Well, why not? Because if that were Jesus, they would have reasoned, the storm would have stopped. And since the storm has not stopped, that cannot be him. They've seen him change water to wine. They've seen him heal the sick, heal the blind. They've seen him feed 5,000 people and a few fish and a couple loaves of bread. They have seen the power of God on an ongoing basis bring immediate change to someone's distressed circumstances. And so here's what they reason. If our distress circumstance, if our storm has not stopped, that cannot be Christ, they operate from a preconceived notion of what God must do with respect to their own situation. But not only that, the last time they saw Jesus, he was up on the mountain. It's impossible. He couldn't be from the mountain on the water. And so they're operating with this preconceived notion of what God would do if it were him and what's actually possible and where it's possible for God to be. Now, we run the same risk in the storms of our lives. We run the risk of believing what are very much unbiblical notions. The storm hasn't stopped. God must not care. The storm hasn't stopped. God must not be with me. The storm hasn't stopped. That God is gone, absent. His presence is no longer with me. And all of those things are not biblical lines of thinking. Here's what the disciples are learning in this moment. In the midst of a storm they did not cause. Stuck, seemingly distressed. Uh, Their lives are in danger because they did only what God asked them to do. And God shows up and they're learning that just because God is there, he doesn't make the storm stop. The promise of Scripture is not that God will immediately improve our circumstances. The promise of Scripture is that even in the midst of our circumstances, God has not abandoned us. And the promise of the passage of Christ walking on the water is not the promise that a storm will stop. It's the promise of God's presence in the midst of the most turbulent moments of our life. And I would submit that's a far greater, more encouraging and hopeful promise than if if God just showed up, everything got better. Think about that with me. If you're like me, and I hope you're not, but if you are, If the promise of Scripture was that when I get distressed, I call on God and He makes everything better, I would turn God into nothing more than this cosmic genie that every time something that I didn't like or didn't feel good happened to me, I would rub my spiritual lamp, ask God to solve it, and then ask Him to tuck Himself away again that would not foster reconciled, redemptive, loving relationship with whom the Bible presents as Abba Father. And we, if we do want God to just be a cosmic genie, the question would then arise for us, do we actually know the God of the scriptures? Do we know his great love for us? And respond with a great love for him. I think we would much rather, if we really know him, And want to be with him, we would desire his presence amidst the storm rather than just a circumstantial improvement. Now, why do I say that? Well, I say it, one, because I think it's biblically true. But secondly, I know it's experientially true. So in December of 2014, okay, December 2014, my wife and I, we living in Austin, Texas. Uh, We've only got our our one child at the time. Uh, So our five-year-old now is six months then. It was October and we decided we were going to do a little uh, fall uh, getaway. And we we're going to drive down to Port Aransas, Texas, spend a couple nights at a Texas beach, which is a lowercase b beach. And so if you used to grow into Alabama and Florida beaches, you'll be disappointed. So we drive down to Port Aransas, Texas. We rent this place on Airbnb. And, and uh, I'm not sure what they took pictures of when they posted it online. <laughs> But it was not the place we stayed. It, it was a complete and total rat hole. I mean, it was dirty. It was not what we expected it to be. So, I think we were in our second. We, didn't even, we I think we booked it for three nights. We stayed two. I just said, consider the rest of my money a donation. <laughs> we're not even staying a third night. And so, I'm sitting on this. Uh, so, our, our, it's nap time for our oldest at that point. And, and so, he's six months. He falls asleep on my lap. There's no reason for my wife and I to both be stuck inside this shed. And so, I just Shan, you know, go down the beach, you read, get some time. I love taking naps at the beach. We just got back from the beach last week, uh, and, and I love a good nap at the beach. So I was great. Sit there. He's going to nap. I'm going to nap. Shannon goes down to the beach. And I don't know what. Uh, there had to be the Spirit uh, of the Lord brought this to mind. But I'm sitting there on this blue, just kind of nasty futon couch, staring at this sleeping little boy, and my mind was immediately taken back to about two and a half, almost three years earlier when I was positioned on a different couch. 765, remember it vividly, 765 South Goodlett Street, across from Audubon Park, just right down the road, curled up, fetal position, on my roommate's sectional begging God to kill me, begging him to kill me. I was probably, I don't know, four months into a severe bout with depression. If the rest of my days were going to feel like that, if that's what it was going to be, then in God's kindness, I was, I was requesting, begging, just shy of demanding that he would just take me home. I'm tapping out, no thank you. Now I am in 2019, uh, with a family I don't deserve, pastoring in a wonderful church, uh, unendingly grateful, God did not answer that prayer in December of 2011. But I also tell you this: my gratitude now is only in direct proportion to the hopeless despair that I also felt. And if I did not taste the reality that God's presence is in the midst of the storm, even when it does not stop, I would not stand before you tearing up with gratitude because I just would have rubbed a lamp and had God, God's genie come down and solve my circumstances. But when you go through it, something, anything, whatever your storm may be, and you realize God's committed presence and faithfulness to you, when he does bring you out on the other side, and he will in his own timing, there is an intimacy, there is a knowledge, there is a deeper faith, there's an unending trust, there is a, a, a life-altering affection that grows within us towards the Lord when we realize it is the promise of his presence amidst the storm that's far greater than our circumstantial improvement. And with all of my being, I think that's what he's trying to teach his disciples here. Because at some point, his physical presence is leaving them, and he'll send his spirit, but he will be crucified. He will ascend and they will be left, and they will have storm after storm after storm that comes their way. And they're going to know that they know that they know Jesus is with them. Amen? So we have them in the midst of this storm. Christ comes out. They don't recognize him, and I think that's because they have this preconceived notion. Surely that's not Jesus. If that was Jesus, he would have fixed all this by now. And yet they learn that it is Christ. And his great ministry to them was not improving circumstances, but proving his presence. But he said to them, it's I, do not be afraid. Incidentally, uh, uh, some of us here, not all of us, but some of us here, have a pretty debilitating struggle with fear. Uh, fear of man, fear of the future. Uh, fear, it cripples some of us. It controls Some of our lives. Uh, Now, we're not going to unpack this this morning, but just a small devotional aside. The antidote to a sin struggle of fear is the presence of God. It's the presence of God. Do not be afraid. Notice he doesn't say the storm's going to stop, he says, don't be afraid. Why? I'm here. I'm here. When God calls Abram, uh, soon to become Abraham, away from everything that he ever knew, Hebrews 11 says, Abraham actually left without knowing where he was going. Why? He had the answer to the only question that mattered. God, do you go with me? Yes, I'm good. It is the presence of God that's the antidote to fear. So it says, it is I, don't be afraid. Verse 21, "Then then, then they were willing to take him on board. And at once the boat was at the shore where they were headed. Notice that God does in His way and in His time in the storm. He does bring them through. And so we've seen the fact that they're in a storm whose point of origin was actually following and obeying Jesus. They're just trying to live life faithfully with God. And even in doing that, found themselves in the midst of a storm. Uh, They learn in the midst of the storm that it is the promise of the presence of God that's granted to us, not the promise of an improved circumstance. And yet they also experience in God's kindness and mercy that he will bring them through. And I hope all of that serves as a great hope and encouragement to us. But that's not the only thing we see in the details of this story. If you were to look at Mark, Matthew, and John, you find in this event, in Jesus' ministry on earth, That Jesus is in three geographical locations. There's a progression to this walking on the water. He's on the mountain in prayer, and he's actually on the mountain, could look down on the sea and be interceding and praying on behalf of the disciples. So so he's on the mountain, he's on the water, and he's in the boat. Three places we find Jesus in this passage on the mountain, in the water. And on the boat. Now, all three of that those are true for us as well. That, that when they say Jesus is on the mountain, Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he forever makes intercession for us on all beha- our behalf. That position for him is ongoing. And so in the midst of your storms, you know the Son of God is at the right hand of the Father interceding on my behalf. But he wasn't just on the mountain. He was on the water. So not only is God, and only God can do this, in his omnipresence, it just means everywhere, at all times, only God can be interceding for us. So Christ interceding on our behalf and then yet with us in the midst of the storm, imminently present. So Christ intercedes on our behalf while simultaneously being present through his spirit with us in the midst of the storm and yet here's the third place we find him. We actually find him in the boat. And this is where the geographical progressions of Christ and the details of the story take a bit of an evangelistic turn, which is fitting that John may be our most evangelistic gospel. Remember his whole purpose in writing that you would know the Son of God and have life in his name. And while we may like the fact that Christ would be interceding on behalf and may be comforted by the fact that he could be with us in the midst of the storm, there's a third component here, and that is they were willing to take him into the boat. Now, let's carry that out. There are some of us here this morning that have not been willing to take Christ into the boat. And there are some of us here this morning, which, by the way, welcome and so grateful that you're here, but you have not yet turned to Christ in faith and repentance, experiencing this unending flow of mercy and grace and forgiveness towards you. That, too, is a storm. It's a storm of being separated from God, a storm that every single person in this room, even if you are a Christian now, was once true of you. The amazing thing about that particular storm, that one God actually does promise to end instantaneously. Because you go from being without him to reconciled to him. Go from being what scripture calls an enemy of God to being a child of God. You go from being stuck and enslaved to sin to being robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You go from being justly pronounced guilty to freely uh, being pronounced innocent. All because of the person and work of Jesus. But the question is, are you willing to take him into the boat? To respond in faith and repentance of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So he's on the mountain He's on the water in the midst of the storm. Is he in your boat? And I know many of you would answer yes. But is he really? Not in a good Christian. Look, I'm an insider. Andrew mentioned. I grew up in Auburn. I'm a southerner. I get it. And I know church can really be a hobby for some of us. I'm not asking do you know about God? Do you know Him? Is He in your boat? That's the question the text leaves us with. On the mountain, in the storm, in the boat. And so I hope through our story this morning you see your circumstances may not be promised to change in the way you want them to, but God's promised to be with you in the midst of them. And the way that He does that, is he intercedes for us? He's present with us, and there's a willingness for us to take him in the boat. Let's pray. And God, we're grateful and hopeful that this time was one honoring to you, but two meaningful to us. And so, in the kindness of your Spirit, would you uh, allow us, and only the way that you can, uh, allow us to be more conformed to the image of Christ? because of our time together this morning. And it's in that simple prayer to that end, uh, we ask you to affect the power of your spirit in Christ's wonderful name, amen.